All right, gang. <clears throat> I think we're ready to uh, rock and roll, loot, scoot, and boogie, however you want to. Whoa. That was almost it. Yeah, we'll just not touch it. Well, it's tippy. I think the. We're good. Now we're we're sturdier. Just the wheels whirl. That's better. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, well, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give you thanks for all your many gifts that you give to us. We thank you in a special way on this Thursday, the day that you gave your apostles the Eucharist in the upper room. We thank you for the gift of the Eucharist. Blessed, it may always be a source of grace and inspiration and solace in our lives. We entrust this time into Mary's hands as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so last time we talked about the Mass. How was the video? Good? Yeah? Good? Great. Yeah, Father Mike Schmitz, he's the... We should get him to do all these. That'd be great, man. Anyways, I'd love to listen. But um, So yeah, so we did the Mass, which you think the Mass is the, is the action, right? The Mass is the liturgical act. And the Eucharist, so we're going to focus more this time on the, the Eucharist itself, right? On the body, the blood of Christ, not so much of the action of the, the Mass. And you remember kind of this, this whole story that we're a part of, right? We're part of this story of the creation of the world, everything's good, everything flows from a father that loves us, and then it gets broken so dramatically and so quickly, and then Jesus comes to save us, and then we become saints. That's the goal, that we have this constant transformation of sanctification preparing for the, uh, for the second coming. And so I put just like the little subtitle here that the Eucharist is the food of saints. I was thinking in particularly um, of a, uh, a homily that I heard a number, number of years ago, but it was on All Saints Day. So, you know, All Saints Day, November 1st, it fell on a Sunday this year, or that year, and so it, it trumped, the normal, uh, trumped the normal feast day, or trumped whatever 30-something Sunday in our ordinary time. So at Mass, the priest gave this homily that said, you know, yesterday on Halloween, Everybody put on masks, right? Kind of disguising who they are, eating candy, eating food that is, that'll, that is quick, but it'll change. He says, what this feast day of all saints tells us is that who we really are is called to become saints. So to leave behind whatever false selves there are, and the food of saints is the Eucharist. Like just a, like a beautiful like mic drop moment. Um, so... That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. The Eucharist is the food for us to become, to become saints. And I think everybody who's here knows that the Eucharist is, uh, is really important. So I love, you know, kind of an understatement in the title. Like, the Eucharist is important. Well, yes, duh. That's why everybody here comes to Mass at least once a week, looking at most of you more than that. But anywho, so we get this quote from the Catechism right in the start in the section on the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and the works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pascha, our Paschal Lamb. So just to break this down a little bit, the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our Christian life. Think about what does that mean? It's the source. So basically our entire life flows from it. Just you think about the Indian Lake is the source of the Great Miami River. That everything in the Great Miami River flows from that. That's where its origin is. That's where it comes from. 
And you can think about that with so many other, you know, the St. Lawrence River and Lake Ontario, but now we're just going to get in a geography mess, so I'm going to really love. Sorry, this is unimportant, but one of my friends thought to tell me on Monday that he had a funeral for a guy who worked in the map department of the Library of Congress for 30 years. And I told him, if he has an estate sale, you call me, and I will clear my schedule and be there. So I love maps. So anyways, so it's the source of Christian life, right? All of it flows from it, but it's also the summit. So it's the highest point. Like, not only does everything flow from it, but everything leads to it. So you think about like the, uh, the summit of a mountain, right? Every, it's the, the peak to which all of our life climbs to in the Eucharist. And you even see this, the other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and the works of the uh, apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. So that means everything that we do as a church points to this ought to lead to the Eucharist, ought to flow from the Eucharist. And so it's always like a, a, a great kind of reminder is our entire life as the church, whether you know we're working in the parish or we're trying to talk to our kids or whatever it may be, oriented towards, towards the Eucharist. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church. I think Father Mike Schmidt said last week, you know, he, talk, he was talking about the Eucharist like it is everything. Like, as the Lord gives us the Eucharist, he has nothing else to give us. It's not like you get this and, oh, there's some other stuff you'll get later. It's actually everything that God has to give us is there because it's his son, because it's, it's Jesus Christ himself. So everything, all the spiritual goods that we ever have to give the world is right there. There's nothing more that we could ever want. And even like that, that idea or that saying, Sometimes you hear, I've maybe heard it once or twice in my life, but, you know, somebody said, well, I don't go to Mass anymore. I wasn't really getting fed. Do what now? You just didn't realize that you were getting fed with the only thing that God really has to give, his own son. So that's not to be overly critical or harsh, but just to realize he has nothing else to give us other than his son. So the Eucharist is really important because it is Jesus, Jesus himself. Last time we talked about some of the names of the, of the Mass, some of the names of the Eucharist related to the Mass. This time we got a few more. So this is all just quoting from the Catechism. It's called the Eucharist because it's an action of thanksgiving to God. So the Greek word like Eucharistia or what is it? It's in there. Eucharistein. Uh, I don't know Greek. Is Father Jedediah still around? He could help us, but... Uh, so it is, basically means thanksgiving. So the word Eucharist is just a, a translation, transliteration of the Greek word for thanksgiving. So it's the Eucharist, which we give thanks for all that the Lord does for us. And we proclaim his, his work. The Lord's Supper. So at the Last Supper, right, Jesus eats with his, with his friends. He eats with his apostles. So there's a connection between what happens there, as we talked about, right, the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper and uh, the, um, what we do at Mass every Sunday. And then the breaking of the bread. So that's one of the things in the scriptures that what they do gets defined as. So in Acts chapter 2, at the end of kind of Pentecost, it says what the church was doing. And it says they devoted themselves to the prayers, to the teaching of apostles, to the works of poor, and the breaking of the bread. So they call that what they're doing is the breaking of the bread. And even, you know, last time we talked about the road to Emmaus, the, uh, those two apostles, right, um, Clopas and whoever he's walking with, I think his wife, Mary, but um, they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. So this idea of breaking of the bread and the Eucharist are together. And then one that doesn't make it up here, but, you know, probably probably should be mentioned is the Blessed Sacrament. So we have a bunch of sacraments, right? And it's like, well, isn't confirmation a Blessed Sacrament too? It seems pretty important. Isn't uh, baptism a Blessed Sacrament too? It seems really important. Do you look at, here's one of the ways that the Eucharist is different from all the other sacraments. The sacrament, most of the sacraments, they communicate, well, all of them communicate God's life to us, right? They, they give us God's life, right? That's why we're talking about plugging in, right? So it's through which the grace of God comes to us. 
However, we don't say the water in baptism is Jesus. Right? It communicates Jesus. The oil at confirmation is not the Holy Spirit. It communicates the Holy Spirit to us. However, the Eucharist is not just it communicates the bread of life to us. It is Jesus himself. So that's the difference. Rather than just these signs and symbols that we've been talking about communicate life to us, it is life that then gets communicated to us. That little, so that's why it's the blessed sacrament, because it is the one. It is, it is Jesus, not just it communicates Jesus. Right? Okay. So, the, uh, so we're going to kind of talk about like a little bit of Old Testament preparation for, for the Eucharist. And probably the place to start from the, uh, if we're looking, is the story of creation. Where, the first, where we prepare for the Eucharist. Because there's a tree, and on the tree is life. And then the Adam and Eve take from the tree, and they eat it. You fast forward to Jesus. Jesus is there on a tree, and then he's taken from, and he's consumed in the Eucharist, right? The fruit of the tree of the cross is the Eucharist. The fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is, is that, well, it's the fruit. So, you know, if we're looking at kind of preparations for the Eucharist, let's go all the way back to uh, creation for that. But we're also going to talk about... Um, Melchizedek, that's his name, you should know that. It's right in front of me. So there's this kind of wild story in the, uh, in the beginning of Abraham's life. So this is really early in the story of Abraham. So Abraham chapter 12 is when God calls Abraham. After the flood and after the Tower of Babel, he calls Abraham. And Abraham goes off and he's, he's doing, some doing some fighting. And in the, the picture here, so this is one of the... Uh, one of the wood reliefs that went into the high altar at the base at uh, St. Joseph. So you see Abraham's this guy with the, the grain who's got his, his hand over his chest like so. And so he's got his, his battle helmet on. So he's, he's coming back from war. They're victorious. And he goes to this guy, Melchizedek, who we learn is the king of Salem, which Salem means peace, Jerusalem. He's the king of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek offers bread and wine never to be seen from again. Just like a blip on the radar, except the, like he shows up in the Psalms. So I think it's Psalm 110 or 116, you should know that, um, is, is all, Melchizedek shows up. And then in the letter to the Hebrews, Melchizedek shows up as Jesus is one that offers his life. So it's bread and wine, right? Very specific as to what Melchizedek is offering. So it says here in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram with these words, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your foes into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The first tithe, right? Given 10%. It starts right here with, with Abram. So... All right, so that's a little, a little seed in preparation for the Eucharist. Probably a bit of a bigger seed is the story of the manna. So if you remember God's people, they eventually they make their way down to Egypt. And they're in Egypt, they're in slavery. Moses gets called up, leads his people out of Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea in very dramatic fashion. Pharaoh's forces get swallowed up in the, the Red Sea. And, uh, and so they're on their way to the Holy Land, but they got a problem because their tummies are hungry, right? And they start crying out to Moses, hey, we're hungry. At least when we were in Egypt, we had food, right? Like, what a, what a knife, right? Like, we should go back to slavery because at least our tummies were full. So Moses then complains to God. So then we get this from the, the book of Exodus then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. Each day the people are to go out and gather their daily portion. Thus will I test them to see whether they follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, however, when they prepare what they bring in, let it be twice as much as they gather on other days. And this bread gets called manna. And the literal translation of manna is, what is it? So they call this bread, what is it, 
because they're baffled by it, right? The bread just shows up outside their camp every day. I'm like, what is it? I don't care. I'm eating it, right? That was like, that's the kind of story of my life. What is it? I, I don't care. It's good for food. So, um, so they go out and they collect it. And you notice, like, the Lord provides very particularly for them because there would be this temptation to say, oh, man, there's all this bread. We're starving. Let's just stockpile stuff, right? We've got people, people right now that are stockpiling stuff for whatever reason. But, you know, they, they just come and gather what they need for a day and trust that the Lord's going to feed them. Except on the Sabbath, right? They're not supposed to go out on the Sabbath, so on the day before they take, they take two, uh, two days' worth of food. So the Lord feeds them as they're on their journey from slavery to the promised land. And as they're trying to, trying to they're converting, right? For 40 years, they're out in the desert needing a big old conversion because they still want to go back to Egypt. And you think... That says a whole lot about the Eucharist, right? It's the food for us on this journey from slavery to the promised land. And we kind of get complaining sometimes. I'm pointing the finger at myself. Sometimes we get a little frustrated. You know, we get cranky because we're hangry. Um, that's when you're hungry and you get angry, in case you didn't know. Um, and so the Lord gives us the Eucharist. The interesting thing is right after this scene, after the Lord gives them bread, they're like, but... At least in Egypt, we had meat, right? Now we don't have any meat. And so the Lord's very kind, and quail just drop out of the sky for him. Now, that, there's a lot of things in the Bible I'd like to see. That is one of them. Um, has anybody had quail? No? Somebody last night said they had, and uh, I, I told him, could you bring some in next time? He said, oh, it's been since I was a child, so... Tastes like chicken. Yeah. Yeah. There's part of me. Pigeon meat is blue? It's got a different tint to it. Yeah. Wow. I guess we could do pigeon. I don't know if that's a close relative or not. Uh, quail's a little bit bigger. Bigger, yeah. More meat on a quail than a pigeon? Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm open. I am open. I'll give 50 bucks to the first person that brings a quail into the office. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Does it just have, is it live? Is it butchered? Is it prepared? I'll say 50. I will say if there's a prepared quail that's edible that comes into the office, I'll give $100. That goes for all of you listening at home, too. <laughs> Mom? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sounds like a good youth night, you know? Let's prepare some quail. <laughs> Probably shouldn't do that. All right, so we've got this story of the manna in the desert. And the manna was so important that in the Holy of Holies, so in the tabernacle, right? So the tabernacle was the holy place where God dwelt. There was manna in there. There's a staff of Aaron, manna, and anybody know what else? The Ten Commandments, yeah. So they all are housed in the tabernacle, God's dwelling place. The bread of life is in the dwelling place of God. Hopefully laying on the hints kind of thick, but... So it was really important to them, right? This manna in the desert for their, for their Passover. And Jesus is going to pick up on this. So the, it's preparation, and then Jesus, Jesus still does his own preparation. So if you remember the, um, the definition of a sacrament there at the, top, at the top, sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. So they're instituted by Christ. That's kind of what we're going we're gonna to hone in on here for a moment. And the chapter, we're just going to look at the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, oftentimes called the Bread of Life Discourse. But sometimes I think what, well, I say in my younger years, what I missed was that this actually starts with the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. So the multiplication of the loaves and fish is the only miracle other than the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that shows up in all four Gospels. Calming of the storm at sea, walking on water, healing blind people, you know, the uh, exorcism of the Gerasene demoniac, all those, none of those are in all four Gospels. The only miracle, 
other than the resurrection is the multiplication of the loaves and fish, which I think that probably means it's pretty important. Like if every gospel writer is like, you know, like if John's writing his gospel and he, he knows the other three have already been written, it seems pretty clear that John knows those have been written. And he says, you know what? Everybody already knows about this, but it's so important. I'm going to get it in there anyways. So one of the things you notice with this multiplication of the loaves and fish, though, or hopefully that we notice is the verbs that we hear Jesus use. So at the multiplication of the loaves and fish, we hear that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, and then distributed it to everybody. Like those, those four verbs. He take, took, he blessed, or he gave thanks, he broke it, and then gave it. Those are the exact same verbs that are going to show up again at the Last Supper. So, right, and even every time we say, on the night before, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, said the blessing, and gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you in need of it. So this, like it's a little, little seed that's planted, these four verbs that Jesus uses. So he multiplies the loaves and the fish. Everybody eats, they have their fill, right? Their tummies are full, so they're happy, they're content. Uh, they even get some meat because they get some fish. And then there's 12 wicker baskets left over, right? They gather all the leftovers, leftovers up. And then Jesus is like, I'm out, I'm gonna go pray for a little bit. And he sends the apostles across the Sea of Galilee. A big old storm brews up. And Jesus comes across the water, calms the storm. And Mark adds this little tidbit that all the other Gospels don't. Jesus says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely astounded. They had not understood the incident of the loaves. On the contrary, their hearts were hardened. Really interesting line there. They didn't understand the incident with the loaves. What does that have to do with walking on water? Why is that kind of, that's the big misunderstanding they have is some sort of incident with the loaves. And what didn't they, what didn't they understand about that? And you could probably like pray with that and imagine that and there's like endless possibilities as to what they might have missed. But they... Oftentimes, like you, when you read the Gospels, it's like, this happens, this happens, this happens. There's a few connections between things, but oftentimes it's not something this like blatant, that what they did just happened, they didn't get. So just, we just kind of like file that away, that that's something really interesting. The other interesting thing to note is that Mark doesn't say they had not understood the incident of the loaves and the fish, right? For some reason, the, word, the whole fish part just gets left out. And you think, huh, that's peculiar. Maybe just a bit fishy that that's not in there. Uh, thank you for the pity laugh. I appreciate it. Strokes the old ego. <laughs> All right. So they come across the other side. The people all get there. And then Jesus ends up in the synagogue. So this is the synagogue in Capernaum, which you can go to today. The synagogue in Capernaum is still, still there. However, it got like burnt down at some point and they rebuilt it in like the 400s. So the ruins of this synagogue here are from, I think the 400s, but like the base of the one that Jesus would have been in is below it. So they get to John 6, this, you know, they get across to the other side of the sea and then they get in this conversation they said, and they say to him, what sign can you do that we may see and believe in you? What can you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Really weird. So, they say, what can you do, right? We're, we're longing to see if you're the Messiah. What can you do? Moses gave, gave us bread. What can you do? And, um, you know, if Jesus were, like, sarcastic... He would say, uh, where, where'd you guys eat yesterday? Huh? Do, do, like, they didn't understand really where that food came from, evidently. That's part of what they're not getting about the, this whole thing with the loaves. Like, he literally just fed 5,000 people yesterday. I don't know what other sign that you want. Jesus, though, not sarcastic, not vindictive, extremely patient, and uses this as an incredible teaching moment. So right after this, Jesus says, Amen, amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, 
My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So, he's kind of, he, he's going to really slow play with them. And he's going to be extremely patient with them. And you'll notice like the things that I've underlined and the things that we say are going to be a gradual progression as to what the bread of life is. And so it starts with, all right, it's not Moses who gave it. It's my father that gave it. All right, let's just correct that right off the start. Moses is not, you know, a, uh, a catering service that's feeding you. That was, that was my father, okay? And the true bread's that which gives uh, from heaven that gives life to the world. All right, so we just kind of, all right, we're starting with the father gives the bread. And then after a little bit of discussion, right, they're having a dialogue this whole time. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Right? He is the bread of life. So that's like the next step, okay? Comes from the Father. Jesus, hey, I come from the Father. I am the bread of life, which gives life to the world. Now, some of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters kind of like stop right here. All right? Jesus is the bread of life. So that you could take that as, as in many ways, right? You could say, well... His words, like we even use this expression, I'm going to chew on those words, right? That literally his word, his grace, his mercy is what nourishes us, which gives us strength. Like, and so we're going, to, we're going to chew on that for a little while, right? But Jesus doesn't stop there. So in between 35 and 51, there's a whole, whole question about authority, about who has teaching authority. He's working with people. And then he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Okay, right? That's a little bit, right? We're, we're getting to flesh now. He's getting really, and he's in this, he's getting really carnal. He's getting really kind of like a bit graphic maybe, and we'll, that's the next slide too. But you still think, okay, the bread that I'll give is my flesh for the life of the world, right? He's going to die on the cross. We all know that, and that's the flesh that he's going to give for us. You, you see like the gradual unfolding though, the patience of Jesus. And so we're going to get to the next verse is, so the Jews struggle with this. They struggle. The flesh, how, how is he going to give us, like what, what does this mean with his flesh is the bread of life? So the Jews, Jews quarrel among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? They start like chattering. And Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you. Anytime Jesus says amen, amen, I say to you, like, your ears should perk up just a little bit, like, oh, this is going to be important. Not that anything he doesn't say is important, but he's given that emphasis, right? <clears throat> Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. So he's getting like really kind of literal here. Whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood, you have no life within you. Unless you do. So that word eat, though. So right here, all the time that Jesus says eat. There's multiple words in Greek for eat. There's one that's like, you know, like a, a proper eating, right? You think about fork and knife, you get your pinky out, like that sort of eating. That is not what it is here. This word could also be translated as gnaw, right? So unless you gnaw on my flesh, like that's... Carnal, that is visceral. That brings warmth to my heart. So, um, little story. Tuesday night, um, uh, one of the priests in the area, you know, we wanted to have a little, a nice goodbye dinner to Father Jedediah. Uh, he's leaving. He's been with us in the seminary for so long. It's like, we want to say goodbye. And this, one of the priests had a bunch of gift cards to Old City Prime in Lima, which is very fancy and like, whoa, Wow, I ordered a pork chop, and it had a couple bones in there. It was delicious, but there was two bones in there, and there was this battle 
in me for like 40 minutes. I wanted to gnaw on them bones so bad, so bad. But here I am in this fancy steakhouse like, ah, uh, ah, uh, could I just stand it on edge and use my knife to clean it off? It's like, I and it's just because I wanted to live the gospel, you know? Jesus talks about gnawing, so I wanted to gnaw on this bone. Um, Thank you, Judy. If you didn't hear Judy, she just said, "For what you paid for that pork chop, you deserve to gnaw on it." <laughs> I should have like slid the bones in my pocket and just on the way home just <laughs> torn into them. Called <laughs> a doggy bag. A doggy bag. Is that what they call these pockets in the cassock? My doggy bags. I don't know about that. <clears throat> All right, so. So, all right, he's very visceral, right, and gnawing on his flesh. But then also, just this phrase, unless you do this, you do not have life within you. Uh, what do we call something that doesn't have life in it? Dead. So, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're dead. And now that phrase, like, dead on the inside, sounds really bad and really cold-hearted. Um, but to think about our spiritual life, unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in him. So, and then he says, my flesh, like he just doesn't like, he, he gradually, but now he's like, he's in the heat of it and he's just going to the depths, right? For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. So he's not pulling any punches, so to speak. And at the end of this, uh, people say, uh, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? They, they're, so they're understanding him clearly. Because if I said that, right, if I said my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, like, it's going to be real good on the barbecue this weekend, you'd say, Father Sean's done lost his mind. And you would be right in saying that, right? You would say, this is a hard teaching. How could he say this? Which is what the, his listeners say. They say, how, how could anybody listen to this? And they walk away, right? So it's interesting, in this, the first multiplication of the loaves, there was 5,000 people. In the other three Gospels, there's another multiplication of the loaves. There's 4,000 people. Jesus isn't gaining in popularity after this. He's actually, he's lost 1,000 people seemingly because of this. Could be other stuff, but there's 1,000 less people. So people start to walk away, and uh, Jesus very poignantly doesn't, go and chase them down and say, hey, you don't get it, right? You're not understanding it. Let me just kind of like slow play this one more time. Let's, let's talk about it. Oh, you're not understanding what I'm saying, right? You're getting a little too, you're getting a little too carnal. I, I, I'm, I was speaking symbolically. He doesn't. He turns to his apostles and says, you guys also want to leave? I mean, like, <laughs> the gall. Because um, you think like, I have had on multiple occasions not many, but like two or three, where I've been talking and somebody clearly is not happy and they storm off. Not storm off, they leave most of the time quietly. Um, but they've left because of something I've said. Happens. My response is not, hey, you guys want to leave too? Like, but that's what Jesus says. And, uh, and Peter gives the, just one of the most beautiful responses. He just says, Lord, to whom shall we go? We know that you have the words of eternal life. You look at what Peter doesn't say. Peter doesn't say, I get it. It's all clear. It all makes sense to me, Jesus. I'm here. I get it. I don't know about these other fools. Right? He actually just says, I trust you, and uh, you're going to keep working with me. Right? He, he trusts in the Lord, not that he understands everything, which is really just a great answer and a good lesson for us. Right? Sometimes we struggle with what Jesus says. Sometimes we struggle with so much in our lives, and Jesus' response, and even if we're imitating Peter's faith, it's not to say, I have to understand everything, right? I have to know exactly what God's plan is in this moment. I have to know what he's doing, how he's doing it, why he's doing it. But it's actually just, I don't have to know everything. I just have to trust in the Lord and that he's going he's gonna to keep walking with me. So, right, so, um, yeah. Then they, they go about their business. So you think like this is Jesus preparing for the Last Supper, right? We talked about the Last Supper. So John 6 and, and other things, right? Multiplication of the loaves, other times Jesus is eating. Those are uh, 
those are breadcrumbs, right? A little trail of breadcrumbs till we get to the Last Supper um, for, the, for the Eucharist. So we talked about the Last Supper a bit last time, so we're not going to revisit that, although we could. But we're going get to uh, get down to business. So the real presence. So Jesus talks about my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, and the, uh, the Eucharist, we'd say, is really the presence of Jesus. And the presence of Jesus and the presence of God exists all over, right? You say, well, I, I sense his presence in creation or in the love that my parents have for me, I experience the presence of God. And that's, that's all true, right? The, God is present everywhere, right? He's present in our souls in baptism. But this first line here from the Catechism, the mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It is superior to every other mode of presence because it's the presence of Jesus fleshly, right? Physical presence of Jesus, sacramental presence, not just the spiritual presence in creation or the marks of his presence in, in, uh, in the goodness of the world. So it raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and the divinity of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. So I, uh, um, I remember my second grade CCD teacher writing on the chalkboard like, B, B, S, D. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? And she wrote the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus to say, like, what we receive in the Eucharist is, you know, the flesh of Christ. But that's not just to say just the human part of Jesus, right? Not just like his body and blood, but we also, we receive all of Jesus. His divinity, too. So his soul, his divinity. So all of Jesus is there, not just part of Jesus, not just the human part of Jesus, but Jesus can't be divided, Right? He's not a, uh, what do we call, like, the schizophrenic Jesus, right? Here's human Jesus, here's God Jesus. All there. Um, this presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude the other types of presence as if they could not be real, too, but because it is a presence in the fullest sense. That is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself wholly and entirely present. So that's where we talk about the real presence, that it is every bit, every ounce of Christ is truly present there in the Eucharist, in the body, in the blood of Christ. I thought there's a pretty sweet picture I found on the internet so, um, of the real presence of Jesus. So this is kind of the, the efficacious part of this. Like it's really, it makes, it has the effect that it says it does. It makes Christ present in, in the Eucharist to us. So how does this happen? Like this being, right? Because when, when we get bread that gets shipped from somewhere that's going to become the Eucharist, that's going to become the real presence, like how does that change happen? And the word that we have stuck with, transubstantiation. Big old word, great word. So just to break it down, like trans means change, right? If you're going to transfer funds, you're going to change them from one account to the next. So trans means a change, right? Transportation, moving from one spot to the other, one port to the other. Substance is like the, the what a thing is, right? What the, the, the reality of a thing. So... And that would be differentiated. We differentiate this from the accidents. So this is a, this is a, little, uh, a little primer in part of Aristotelian uh, philosophy. So Aristotle, right? Aristotle was a philosopher, ancient Greek philosopher. And I think like the three, four hundreds before Christ, maybe the two hundreds, his works got lost. Nobody found them. And then in the 1200s, they were rediscovered in the, the Catholic Church, and they were like, hey, this is actually really helpful for us to describe the Eucharist. So the substance is what something is, right? Um, and the accidents are like the, the appearances, the, the uh, physical, the things you perceive with your five senses that aren't necessary to 
what something is. So here's an example. I'm Father Sean Wilson. I had a beard. When I got rid of the beard, it did not change who I was. It changed my appearance. So we'd call that an accidental change, right? I could lose an ear, and you would say, that's still Father Sean Wilson, right? That's still who I am. But it's an, we'd call it an accidental change, because it, it's an accident, so it's not like integral to who I am. Uh, makes sense, right? You're not changing. I could even lose a leg. I'm still Father Sean Wilson. I'm just without a leg, right? So, all the, so many of these changes that we experience are accidental changes to stuff, except in the Eucharist, right? So the accidents, the appearances, all stay the same. It's the substance that changes, right? So you get that? So it would be, it's the, whatever the, it's the exact opposite of, I'm still Father Sean, I have a beard, my accidents change. The bread, it, it still looks like bread, it still tastes like bread, it still molds like bread. But what it is changes, its substance changes to be the Eucharist. So that's the transubstantiation. The sub, what it is changes to being the body and blood of Christ. Although it looks like bread, it behaves like bread, it crumbles like bread. However, what it is, is the Eucharist. Does that make sense? Is that, we tracking here? You get some heads nodding? Or you need me to, yeah. I'm not a great philosopher, so I'm shooting from the hip. All right, so the, the Eucharistic presence begins at the moment of consecration and endures as long as the species subsists. What does that mean? So, say those words. Take this, all of you in need of it. This is my body given up for you. Boom. You hear those last words, you know, it's no longer bread. It is the body of Christ, which is why we, we ceremonialize it a little bit, right? We elevate it. We ring some bells. We got a little pause in the mass because that's, the, that's when the change happens. Same thing goes with the blood of Christ. Take this, all of you, and drink from it for this, the blood of the covenant. So that's when the change happens at the moment of consecration. And it endures as long as the species, right? So as long as the, it, it um, looks like it, it is bread, right? It's not bread, but as long as like... Um, so what I'm trying to say is, let's say you had a host, you dissolved it in water. As, long, as soon as it's not behaving like bread, it's not acting like bread, we'd say then it's, it's no longer the Eucharist, right? That's why, we, that's why if somebody like spits up a host, like you're at the nursing home, you give Holy Communion, somebody spits it up, you dissolve it in water, and then just pour that water straight into the ground because then it's no longer the Eucharist once it's all dissolved. Of course, somebody does spit that out. You, you can consume that yourself, but many people don't want to do that. I mean, I have. I'm just, that's probably not shocking to any of you whatsoever, but they're um, like, I don't, I don't want to have this host with me for the next 20 minutes. I would like to, I would like to get Jesus put away. So anyways, um, Christ is present in each part of the Eucharist. So I think we've probably all been to Mass where the hosts run short, like, whoo, we didn't put out enough hosts. And then we have to begin to break the hosts. And those who receive uh, half a host do not receive half of Jesus, right? You don't receive the left half or the right half or the top half, the bottom half. We receive all of Jesus. So all of Jesus is present in every particle of the Eucharist, which is, you know, we, this why at the end of Mass, or after distributing the Holy Communion, we're very careful about what we do with those particles. Right? We take the time to purify. And you even think, what did Jesus do at the end of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish? What did the people do? They went out and they gathered all the parts, all the 12 wicker baskets, which they could have said, you know, Jesus gave us all this food. We really like, don't have to worry about it because he could really do it again, right? Jesus can take care of feeding us again which we could have that same attitude with the Eucharist. I've heard people say this. Well, I mean, Jesus can take care of himself. Let's not be overly scrupulous about it. Let's not, let's not, uh, let's not uh, have a cow out of all of this. But, you know, if we believe that every particle is really Christ, we're going we're gonna to care for it accordingly. So, um, yeah, Christ is present in each part of the Eucharist. But there, you know, in all honesty, there is a sense where we can be like overly scrupulous, right? There's extremes probably for every one of these, and we can get incredibly worked up. You know, we can't sleep at night because we're worried about what's happened to the particles of the Eucharist. I mean, that's a thing. 
So transubstantiation. The substance changes, the accidents, looking like bread, behaving like bread is still the same. All right, so this is really Jesus in the Eucharist. And if you notice at the end of Mass, it's put into something called a tabernacle. Anybody know where this tabernacle is on these pictures? Bonus points. Anybody? The Basilica of the Sacred Heart on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. Where's Deacon Terry when you need him, huh? Deacon Terry would have known that right off the bat. So yeah, if you ever go to the campus on the University of Notre Dame, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart is a masterpiece, just absolutely beautiful. And this tabernacle, you walk in like, oh dang, wow, that's a house for our Lord right there. He's moving on up. So, tabernacle. How does the tab, where did this thing, like, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus didn't have a tabernacle sitting on the side that he's going to put some extra, you know, he's like, oh, we got some leftover bread, let's put it in the tabernacle, we'll save it. So how did this happen? So, it's just very practical. So you think about, at the end of Mass, in the early church, they wanted to take the hosts, they wanted to take the Eucharist to those who are sick. Very noble thing, right? Very holy thing. We got sick people that can't be here, let's take them to the Eucharist. Great. What do we do with it in the meantime? Well, I guess we could just set it on the table, but that doesn't seem right. Well, maybe we should put it in something to keep it safe, right? We could kind of keep it locked up. All right, let's get something. Well, if that's the Eucharist, if that is that, like, it should really be a nice box, right? Like, the cardboard box or, you know, the one that we made out of clay, like, ah, just not great. Uh, let's get a nice one, right? Let's, get, let's make something nice. And then, okay, we've got this nice, this nice tabernacle. Well, it should be locked, right? Because we don't want anybody to desecrate it. We don't want anybody to do anything, so let's make sure it's locked. And then comes this realization like, ooh, we should pray there. Right? If that really is the Eucharist, that's, that's, and that's really Jesus, that's where we should, we should pray. And see, it's like a very natural, but also like a spiritual reflection of what we believe about the Eucharist. So the tabernacle just didn't show up out of nowhere, but it actually was um, um, just kind of a practical growth in the church. So tabernacle, you think also the, the tent in the Old Testament where the, uh, the staff was, the manna, the Ten Commandments, that was in the tabernacle. So that's how we got the, got the name there. So, and that's what this section in the Catechism says. The tabernacle was first intended for the reservation of the Eucharist in a worthy place so that it could be brought to the sick and those absent of, of Mass. As faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist deepened, the church became conscious of the meaning of silent adoration of the Lord present under the Eucharistic species. It is for this reason that the tabernacle should be located in an especially worthy place in the church and should be constructed in such a way that it emphasizes and manifests the truth of the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. So, two things there. The location should be in a worthy place. I don't know if anybody's ever been to a church and you feel like Mary Magdalene, right? They have taken my Lord and I don't know what they've done with him, right? You've got to kind of play hide and seek with Jesus. Not a fun experience, but you're always really happy when you find him. At least I am. So, um, so there's that. And then the dignified materials, right? That's, the, that's, um, that's what this one highlights, right? The dignity, the beauty that that, that, that tabernacle has. It's great. Maybe the... Um, trying to think of the best tabernacles, the, more, the ones you're like, woof, that's beautiful. The, uh, the cathedral in Toledo, if you've ever been to the cathedral, Rosary Cathedral in Toledo, the tabernacle is, is not right in the middle, but it's in a Blessed Sacrament Chapel. Like if you're looking at the altar, it's off to the right. You're right. Um, it is magnificent. So, and the whole cathedral in Toledo is really, really pretty. So, all right. So, of course, the, the Eucharist, though, is meant for us to consume, meant for us to receive. So, here's some fruits of uh, the Holy Communion. And you think about Holy Communion and what it does for us, what it does in us. This is all the, the part of the, about the sacrament which divine life is dispensed to us. So, Jesus gives us his, his life. And the section in the Catechism 
for what the Eucharist does for us is much, much longer than it is for baptism or confirmation or anointing the sick. Intimate union with Christ. Christ is inside of us, right? He comes to dwell in us through the Eucharist, this incredible gift of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And he even said that in that John chapter 6, right? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, right? He abides in us. He lives in us. So there's a level of intimacy there, which is beautiful. It's nourishment for our interior life. So you think about this whole story of the manna. As the Israelites are wandering in the desert, what nourishes them? The Eucharist, right? Or the, the manna. What nourishes us, right? We, we want strength to be good Catholics. We want strength to, to be bold in our faith, to be generous. Well, the Eucharist gives us strength, right? Just as food nourishes us, right? We eat food because it nourishes us, so the Eucharist does for our spiritual life. It separates us from, uh, from sin. So it gives us a, a distance between sin. It actually helps us to avoid sin. It makes the church. So, uh, and it unites the church. And St. Paul talks about this. Because we share in one chalice, we are one. Because we share in one loaf, we are one. So there's this unity that exists throughout the church by the Eucharist, right? We are part of the family of God, like you and I, all of you together, because the same blood runs through our veins, the blood of Jesus Christ. So family shares blood, and we share the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It... it makes us the church. Unfortunately, there are some real sad, you know, it's, it's a particularly sad thing when people who are not Catholic can't receive Holy Communion. I think, well, if the, if the Eucharist makes the church, then let's just give everybody Holy Communion, and then we'll, we'll, get the church, we'll get the church back. We'll get the family back together. But you remember, like, this is, this is the most intimate thing that we do with Jesus. And to take that lightly would not to be able to do that justice, just to give Holy Communion to whoever's, whoever's there, that this is the most intimate thing that we do with the Lord. And so to be prepared for that, right, to, to believe that, to recognize that um, is what we kind of have to start from. So, and even, I have that little quote in there, need holy orders, and maybe that's something that needs to be there, maybe it's something that doesn't need to be there. But just a reminder, it takes a, a priest to make the Eucharist present. So if, if, if communion gets distributed at a non-Catholic church, it is bread that reminds us it is not the real presence of Jesus Christ because there wasn't a, a priest to make that, make that possible. So, um, so if you go to a, a non-Catholic place, you know, you've got a, a funeral or you've got a wedding or you're there with a the spouse to not receive communion because it is, um, it is bread not the, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, fair warning or suggestion, whatever. Uh, commits us to the poor. So, there's a great line that Mother Teresa, who worked so diligently with the poor, she said, if we can't see Jesus in the Eucharist, we'll never see Jesus in the poor. That to recognize the Jesus in the poor, we have to recognize Jesus in the Eucharist. And her whole work with the poor flowed from her commitment or her, uh, her love of the Eucharist. And then it, it mentions the Eucharist, like if we open ourselves to the graces of the Eucharist, it'll preserve us from mortal sin. So that's great. So what a great gift, all of these fruits. And as you do this, you can reflect on, oh man, all the times I've received Holy Communion. Maybe the first time you received Holy Communion, which is this picture. This is me right here on the end, receiving my first Holy Communion. Yep. So Father Lee Serrata here was our pastor for 22 years, a wonderful man, Sicilian by birth and by heart. And uh, so, yeah, it's a great day. So look how happy I am. <laughs> My mom and dad might watch this. They're not going to, well, they sent this to me. So uh, I had my teeth, and then I received my first Holy Communion, and they left. Just kidding. So, anyways, yeah, May 4th, 1997, great day. I get the same beard as my dad, if you can't tell. We kind of got, we share, share beard genes. All right, um, so receiving Holy Communion, such a great thing, 
But St. Paul gives us a little cautionary tale. So St. Paul, in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, talks about the Eucharist. Uh, on the night before Jesus died, he took bread, gave the loaves, gave it to his disciples, said blah, blah, blah. And, and then he gets to this part, though. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself and so eat uh, the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are ill and infirm, and a considerable number are dying. If we discerned ourselves, we would not be under judgment. But since we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So kind of strong words from St. Paul, and an interesting insight, right? There's many people who, who are eating, he said, eating the bread and drinking the cup unworthily. And they should examine themselves beforehand. He even says, this is why many of you are sick, because you're, you're doing this. And, and maybe he means physical, ill and infirm, and a considerable, considerable number are dying. But maybe he means spiritually, right? They're sick spiritually, they're ill, they're infirm, they're dying. And the great analogy is our own natural life, right? So let's say we've got a little GI issue going on, and we're not really able to digest food properly. And so the answer is to not shove more food in there to see if it works. The answer is to actually get healed, right? Is to actually say, I gotta go to the doctor, get my stomach straightened out, and then I can eat. Similarly with the Eucharist, right? If we've got an illness, we've got a sickness, mortal sin, and we just keep consuming the Eucharist, we're not able to actually, that doesn't help us. We actually have to go to confession first to have our sickness, our ailment, healed, and then we can receive Jesus in the Eucharist. So because St. Paul says this, the church says, okay, if, you ha if we have mortal sin on our soul, we should go to confession before we receive Holy Communion. So because St. Paul said so, not because we're bad, you know, not because we're unredeemable or, you know, it's punishment, it's for our, it's for our own good, right? St. Paul talks about drinking judgment upon ourselves. So just a little like sidebar on, on mortal sin. Three things have to be present for a mortal sin. Has to be something serious, right? Grave matter, we call it. Second thing is we have to know it's grave matter. So for example, I've had this happen a handful of times where somebody says, I didn't know it was a mortal sin. I didn't know it was grave matter to skip mass on Sunday. Uh, it was like, well, then it wasn't a mortal sin. But now that you know it is, than it is from here on out for you, right? So you've got to, it's got to be serious. You've got to know it's serious. And then you have to have full consent of the will, right? So let's say, let's keep with the skipping mass on Sunday. Somebody is, right, they're in a car wreck on the way to mass. They don't have full able to choose that. They're sick in a hospital bed, right? People have, people sometimes will confess, oh, I, I didn't make it to mass on Sunday. Oh, what happened? Well, I was in the hospital. It's like, that's, yeah, you, you weren't expected to be there. So, um, yeah, so three things for mortal sin. Got to be serious. Got to know it's serious. Got to do it fully and willingly. That happens. Get the, get the tummy uns, you know, get the sins. Uh, go to confession. <laughs> All right. And then it gets entrusted to the church, right? This is the last thing with, um, yeah, mortal sin. So this is, this is actually my first Mass. I went on a, like a personal picture craze. So, so there's me, first Mass in the same, same church that I grew up in. So the church is able to kind of like discern things with, um, with how we celebrate all the sacraments. Here's one that is, um, is important, like the top thing there, low gluten hosts. So we know probably it seems to be happening more. People have like celiac disease or they're gluten intolerant and all those different things. And sometimes they get real bad reactions um, to that. You know, yeah, anyways. So what can we do with a host, right? There are places that sell gluten-free hosts. And the church asks, can we use, people ask the church, can we use gluten-free hosts? And the church did some reflecting to say, actually, Gluten seems to be something, is something that is essential to bread, right? Gluten makes bread bread. So anything, we have to use bread for the Eucharist. So anything that has, is the Eucharist, has to have gluten in it. So 
they, we use low-gluten hosts, not gluten-free hosts. Had a couple times somebody say, hey, Father, can you use these gluten-free hosts? I've got celiac. And like, let me check the bag to see if they're low-gluten hosts or if they're actually gluten-free. If they're gluten-free, we say, well, no. If we'd use this for the Eucharist, we'd just be shooting a blank, right? It would still be bread. So the church, right, gets to able to kind of discern this. Reminder, it's the church, not the priests. So this is from the Second Vatican Council. Therefore, no other person, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. That's a pretty clear instruction, right? It's not about, oh, you know what? I think it would be really nice if during Lent we all knelt for the penitential act. Think like, that would be holy, right? That would be good. It's not, it's not ours to, to make up, right? It's not ours to, to change. Um, and you think about all the other ways that that could happen, right? About any invention you could think of has probably been tried. But uh, the person at the seminary who taught us how to say Mass made us, part of our exam was to memorize this and to know exactly what document from the Second Vatican Council it came. Sacra Sanctum Concilium, paragraph 22, section 3. So, <laughs> that's why you know those things. So another, you know, entrusted to the church, first reconciliation happens before first Holy Communion. There was a time I know when people were saying, well, let's, let's, people aren't ready to go to confession until like fourth grade, but they, receive, they can receive Holy Communion uh, before that. It's, the church is always first reconciliation before first Holy Communion. And that actually came out like there was a document in uh, 2004 that the church released um, and the, the title in English is uh, The Sacrament of the Redeemer. And then like the subtitle is On Certain Liturgical Abuses Concerning the Eucharist. And it is a long document of basically anything they had ever heard of to say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. One of them, um, let's see, so re confession before communion, that was one that was in there. Another one was um, some, and I, uh, anyways, you get that big jar of the, the wine that gets brought forward in the gifts of consecrating the precious blood in there and then pouring it into all the chalices after it's already the blood of Christ, not before. All right, so we'll get that, we'll add a little water, and then it goes into each chalice. Then we do the Eucharistic prayer. There's places where they would just set that on the altar, consecrate it in the jar, and then pour it. The church says, no, no, that's like any time, don't pour the precious blood ever. And... I've poured wine before, it gets, you get dribbles everywhere. So there's all sorts of fun stuff in there. You want to read that document? It's, it's, a, uh, it's a lesson in creativity. Maybe what not to be creative about. And then how to receive Holy Communion. So the church in, is able to you know, instruct us how to receive Holy Communion. This has been like a whole like new reflection for so many of us after the pandemic. Like, okay, how are we going to distribute the pre precious blood? You mean we could use a spoon and pour it into people's mouths? Actually, the church says that's, that there's a tradition for that. Um, a golden straw, right? I don't know where you get a golden straw, but you, that is permissible. Intinction. So to dip the, the body of Christ in the precious blood, and then it goes directly on the tongue. That's all, all legitimate. But uh, only I th do yeah, yeah. Now, that I have heard, it, when you read it, it seems to say that, but I've heard people say that's not the case. So, so that, oh, if you didn't hear that, intinction that only priests or deacons can, or a bishop can do that, just because of it, it gets a little, it gets a little tricky. Um, and that's an open question, and maybe somebody knows the answer to that, but... And then, you know, receiving in the hands, receiving on the tongue. It was the tradition of the, uh, the church for thousands of or a thousand years to receive Holy Communion on the tongue. In 1970s, early 70s, Pope Paul VI gave permission to receive in the hand. And um, so the bishops say that, um, that it could be either in the United States of America. So, um, so there's that. You always want to keep in mind the particles. Like that is, like if you do receive Holy Communion in the hand, uh, those particles, you do have a responsibility to make sure you're not taking Jesus into your pockets, you're not taking him anywhere, to really kind of be 
not scrupulous, but diligent to make sure that, um, that there aren't any particles left on your hand or, or anywhere else. So, um, yeah. So it's entrusted to the church. Any else questions about that? Oh, actually, also that document on certain uh, things pertaining to the liturgy, it, it mentions like um, people can't be refused Holy Communion for receiving on the tongue or for receiving kneeling. So that came up recently with this COVID stuff where people were getting refused Holy Communion because they wanted to receive on the tongue. And people are like, kind of went germ, talking about germs there. And I know Archbishop Schnur's like, actually, I don't have permission to say they can't do that because the church gives people permission to do that. He's like, you can try to do it practically where, like, and that's what we did. So if you remember, we said, if you want to receive on the tongue, please go to the priest's line. And, and that was that. So all sorts of fun, you know, all sorts of fun. All right, we're going to end with some great quotes, dope quotes. All right. Um, so St. Augustine says, recognize in this bread what hung on the cross and in the chalice what flowed from his side. So this same flesh of Christ that hung upon the cross is also the flesh that's given to us in the Eucharist. I love this from St. Cyril of Alexandria, the patron saint of Kellogg's, right? St. Cyril of Alexandria. Eh? Ugh. As two pieces of wax fused together make one, so he who receives Holy Communion is so united with Christ that Christ is in him and he is in Christ. Love that image, right? Union with Christ, like two pieces of wax getting melted together. St. John Vianney, when we receive Holy Communion, we experience something extraordinary, a joy, a fragrance, a well-being that thrills the whole body and causes it to exalt and then Pope St. Pius X, Holy Communion is the shortest and safest way to heaven. Similarly, um, Blessed Carlo Acutis says the Eucharist is his highway to heaven. So the shortest and safest way to heaven. Actually, in that quote, Pius X kind of talks about these other ways to heaven. And he ends with, but, you know, the quickest way to heaven is through the Eucharist. So Holy Communion. Questions? Comments, concerns? All right. Speak now or hold your peace. Oh, next week. Yes, we should talk about next week. I'm on vacation next week. So Father Michael Willig is going to talk about penance and reconciliation, which should be great because... He's just started hearing confessions. So you might get, I don't know, you know, I don't know how reflective you'll get on, like, what's this like? Maybe that's a question you could ask him. Father, you just, you're just, you know, a couple months into hearing this. What's the experience like? And um, that, that'd be interesting. I would actually really be curious about that. So, well, we've talked about it a little bit. So, all right. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a good